The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And Ferris. Hey there. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also get in touch on Twitter at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. Today, we're going to take stock on how the space industry is holding up amidst the global crisis that is the COVID-19 pandemic. We have a few topics picked up about companies that are coping and how the industry is going to come out on the other end. I think the first story we should start with is OneWeb. OneWeb is a satellite constellation company that just launched a few satellites they have recently filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. This is huge. This kind of took me really by surprise. When we're talking about uh, low Earth orbit communication constellations, OneWeb and Starlink have been at the top of the discussion. Uh, they're the two companies that are actually launching satellites. Uh, OneWeb uh, has a kind of legal lead because uh, they have priority to the spectrum. Uh, so these are the top two competitors pushing the idea of global high-speed, low-latency internet access. And so it was an interesting competition to see, well, who's going to launch the first batch of satellites? Who's going to become operational first? Uh, the constellations have slightly different architectures. And the, it was this, this two-horse race. Um, and with the global uh, pre-recession, we're not confirmed to be in a long-lasting recession, but the markets have been down by a huge amount. Uh, apparently, uh, OneWeb internally and financially was, was more a house of cards than a, a solid bedrock of a company. And so there was a rumor on uh, Bloomberg reported that they were mulling bankruptcy uh, just a few days after they had launched another batch of satellites, um, which was surprising. And as of recording, uh, the companies officially filed for bankruptcy. They had taken in uh, billions of dollars led by SoftBank, which is a, a global investment company uh, with their hands in many companies. Uh, you might have heard of the WeWork um, implosion from late last year. That was a SoftBank-backed company. And so now there's a couple hundred satellites in orbit and no company to run them. So OneWeb has laid off all of their staff. They filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and there's a long list of creditors uh, from major uh, investment firms as well as suppliers. So Space, Qualcomm, Deloitte, HughesNet, Viasat, uh, Collins Aerospace, Ruag Space, even Nokia uh, are all listed as creditors for OneWeb. So while SoftBank is the single largest investor, there's a huge swath of tech and telecommunications companies that had invested uh, in this project. So I have a few uh, corrections there. So OneWeb has 74 satellites in orbit currently, right now. Um, this is after just uh, as recently as March 21st, where they put up 34 satellites. Um, and they didn't lay off all of their staff. They laid off 85% of the staff, which is still a huge amount considering they, they have 500 employees. Um, and they said that the company wants to keep tabs. They want to make sure the satellites that are in space aren't just space junk. They're still um, continuing limited operations to keep the satellites alive. And one thing that... that so, yes, OneWeb has borrowed literally billions of dollars of money, but there's still a long way to go. Uh, according to some analysts, to get the full 650 satellite constellation fully operational, it would still take $7.5 billion to complete. Uh, so I don't know, it kind of, those numbers change the perspective a little bit, in my opinion. 
Yeah. It's also unfortunate that because of the way these constellations work, in order to start providing partial coverage and then full coverage, you need a significant number of satellites. Uh, if you were building like a geostationary satellite network, one satellite could cover, you know, half a continent um, and it would be a, a fixed uh, point, right? So everything, everyone or all the land within that area would be able to get access once that satellite's ready to go. Because these satellites are in low Earth orbits and they process around the entire Earth, until you get a partially filled out shell or fully filled out shell, you might only have access, you know, three hours a day or, or once every couple days, uh, which is not reliable enough for consumers to actually use. Yeah, that definitely makes, I think if you look at, some of the previous constellations or low Earth orbit constellations like Iridium, Global Star, that has been a challenge. A lot of them run out of capital by the time they have a certain number of satellites in orbit, or even by the time they finally get the satellites in orbit, they cannot continue without going bankrupt. And actually, that, that kind of reminds me of some of the comments we've heard from SpaceX and Elon Musk um, at Satellite 2020 about focusing on making sure Starlink does not bankrupt SpaceX, or that the business does not go bankrupt. There's a specific reference there for how, however many, or the number of low-Earth orbit constellations that did not go bankrupt, and that number was zero. Yeah, it's really interesting to look back at, like, historically, uh, in the, the late 90s or the 2000s, there was an explosion in these communication networks. So, like, Iridium, Global Star, and Orbcom, you might have heard of them. They've had launches for their second gen, but they're hugely capital intensive. They they spend all their money launching all the satellites, and then right before they're finished, the company kind of collapses, and another group of people are able to swoop in and buy the whole thing for cheap and then provide the service. So like that transition from being a satellite builder to being a telecommunications company has really been, been different. And I think part of that is like the... The skill sets and the the company infrastructure to build, design, and build satellites are different than a one that needs to provide service. But yeah, an interesting twist on one web in particular is the coronavirus. This global pandemic is—it looks like it was the straw that broke SoftBank's camel's back. So not only did one does one web require a ton more capital to become operational and start making money. But the global economy is, you know, undergoing this massive upheaval. And the twist is that like OneWeb and SoftBank explicitly call out the coronavirus pandemic as relating to this bankruptcy. According to a BBC report, OneWeb said the company had been close to obtaining financing, but the progress did not progress because of the financial impact and the market turbulence related to the spread of COVID-19. That's the quote from the OneWeb memo. They're directly calling out this. And um, so Iridium, Global Star, Orbcom, these companies may have gone through this uh, metamorphosis using bankruptcy as kind of, you know, the catalyst for them to reemerge as a telecommunications company, but they didn't have to contend with the uncertainty that this pandemic is causing on the whole global economy. So it's the, yes, we've seen this before, sort of, but it, it's a whole new, whole new game. Yeah. The two comments on that one is with, with Iridium, the constellation was almost fully completed when there was bankruptcy. So that makes it more attractive to, an outside buyer to say, oh, like I can take over this project that's almost finished, get it up to running and start making money. Any future investor in a, a post-bankruptcy OneWeb would have to put in the four or five billion dollars to get it over the finish line to start making money. And the second aspect is like this is really comes down to bad timing, right? If OneWeb had closed their funding round while before the economy entered this period of uncertainty, they might be safe and funded for the next year or two, and they could weather the storm of uncertainty. But 
uh, unfortunately, because of the way their cash on hand and when they were going out to get funding all coincided, um, they are basically caught in the crossfire. So it's, it's really unfortunate, but it's, it speaks to the, the uncertainty that everyone has to kind of compete in. And um, it's important to note that it's, it's not an economic downturn in the space market or the telecommunications market that's causing this. This is a, a global uh, disruption. And so their primary investor, SoftBank, who has interests in many, many, interest, many, many different industries, is uh, affected on all of those fronts. And so they can't take a, a risky bet in one industry while having a solid foundation in other places. Uh, their entire portfolio is being affected. That's a great point. Um, and I think it's a now's a good time to talk about how coronavirus is affecting the space industry at large. And like you said, it's affecting everyone. But uh, let's take a look at the different ways that space companies are feeling it. Um, first of all, one of uh, back in February, Ariane Space closed their French Guiana spaceport. And this is one of the first major moves uh, that caught my attention with regard to coronavirus. And this also kind of took me by surprise. Uh, I think this falls under uh, an abundance of, of caution. Uh, you know, Ariane Space is a commercial entity, but it's it's backed by the ESA and the U- European Union. And so delaying launches, whether it's one month or three months, uh, really doesn't have a, a strong business uh, impact. You know, if you've looked at like the life cycle of a rocket launch, there's a tail that's 18 plus months long, right? And so they, they book the order and there's installment payments. And, you know, it's not a like short-term transaction. And so whether something gets delayed a month or three months really doesn't have a huge impact on their business compared to other businesses who might have, you know, one month of inventory and rely on that revenue. And launches get delayed for a variety of reasons. Bad weather can push a launch upwards of a month. Uh, You know, technical issues might delay something, you know, a month or more. And so I think it's, it's, they're fortunate that they're able to close the facilities for an extended period of time without really impacting uh, their their business. So on the other hand, uh, SpaceX is still launching uh, despite all of this. Uh, there have been a few Starlink launches that have taken place since we've known about coronavirus and it's the dangers, you know. So ESA closes a spaceport, but that doesn't mean everyone is, you know, what's the smart move? Like, do you think SpaceX shouldn't be launching? I think, I think part of it too is if, if you look at the closure time of the French Guiana center, it, it was around, I think it was end of, you said end of February, beginning of March. At that point in time, both Italy or Italy specifically was trying to become a hotspot. And if you look at the launch that was going to happen at the time, it was a Vega, a Vega rocket launch. And the manufacturer for the Vega rocket is a company called Avio, which is an Italian company. And so it might've been a very, you know, kind of the biggest driver there might've been the outbreak in Italy and the deteriorating state of the pandemic management. And so that might explain why that happened specifically. We can, uh, we can see that at the moment, things are still ongoing with SpaceX, mainly because they launched here in the United States. We may or may not start seeing impacts due to launch depending on the conditions around you know, both Los Angeles and California and the different launch sites. Yeah, I think it really comes down to like Florida currently is not a, a shelter in place uh, site. Um, this is being recorded on March 28th, so that might have changed at this point. Um, and so, like, there, there. If you take precautions, you m- might be safe enough and might mitigate the risk enough to continue launches. Uh, there's certain things that are national security launches that are deemed essential that are continue no matter what. But you know, if 
if larger parts of the supply chain fares, I think you make a good point. Like if the Italian part of the, the supply chain is disrupted, that's going to delay launches, you know, six months or a year from now, just because things are shut down now. Uh, if for SpaceX case, if their LA factory has to shut down, that could delay things later in this year. For ULA, if their Alabama factory was shut down for a period of time, that would infect them for a much longer uh, time period than just the actual facility closure because these supply chains are so distributed, they have such long lead times. So it is tough to predict the full impact. ESA has a different mission that is also affected by coronavirus, and that is ExoMars. ExoMars is a Martian lander uh, with the goal of drilling beneath the Martian surface and looking for water. And it's also a collaboration between ESA and Roscosmos. So uh, ExoMars has had its own host of problems, including failed parachute tests that delayed uh, the mission in the past. Since then, it seems like uh, the project has overcome those parachute issues just in time for coronavirus to hit. So um, ESA and Roscosmos said that they're, ho- they're postponing work on ExoMars uh, due to, quote, circumstances related to the exacerbation of epidemiological situation in Europe, which left our experts practically no possibility to proceed with travel to partner industries. In other words, the same thing we were saying before, where the whole supply chain, in this case, including the engineering and the assembly and the parts, are all affected. And when you kind of break that supply chain, it's really hard to progress. Unlike rocket launches uh, for low Earth satellites or even geosatellites, ExoMars is on a timetable. So pushing out or postponing work on ExoMars means they have to wait until the next launch window, which puts them at a 2022 launch. Yeah, um, I think the coronavirus with regards to the ExoMars 2020 mission is really the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, they had had so many smaller delays that they can been pushing them and um, they're already running very close to their maximum schedule. And because they're very close to being done and they're doing, you know, final integration where people need to be together, it's all in-person work. It's, it's manufacturing and testing. Uh, having restricted travel uh, has an extreme effect on the program. You know, if they were doing, you know, mission concepts uh, and this had all happened, I think most of the the scientists and engineers could be doing a lot of the analysis and research distributed. But because there's physical hardware that has to go between different testing centers and different laboratories, uh, it has an outsized impact. And all that came together with the tight schedule that really just pushed it uh, farther to the left. Interesting, though. Farther to the right. An- Push another, it farther to the right. An- another Mars mission that actually might not be as impacted by the current state is the Mars 2020 rover. Work on it is still ongoing. Launch preparations are ongoing, at least as far as we know at the moment. And it's being prepared for a launch this year. So that might be... Um, I'm only speculating here, but that might be because with Mars 2020 rover, which we should note has been recently renamed to Perseverance, which is a fun name. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, it might be easier for them to practice uh, social distancing in the facility. If you only need a couple people or you limit your manufacturing workforce, assembling and assembly and test workforce, if you limit their exposure to each other, wear proper uh, personal protection equipment and distance themselves, for example, the, the six foot radius that's been advised, that type of thing, that can still happen. You know, people can still, they can still go to work and work on that hardware. Maybe they're a little bit safer because they're not so distributed and since it's not. Um, yeah. I think the Perseverance rover has the advantage of being still at the JPL uh, Research Center. Um, you know, if you look at missions that require a lot of travel, so like the James Webb Space Telescope has been delayed because it has to travel across the country to different testing centers as part of its program. Uh, SLS uh, testing has been delayed because you have to move uh, hardware between sites. Um, with projects that require moving, 
uh, during a pandemic where you're trying to minimize travel and, and minimize bringing people together, uh, those projects are more likely to be delayed. And fortunately, JPL has lots of great talent on site that can work on the project because that project is in that phase, right? When they're testing the rover and they would be sending it to different test sites around the U.S. right before launch, if they were in that phase, that might actually delay that mission. And because it's an interplanetary mission, they also have a, a tight window. Um, so it's it's fortunate that they are just outside of that critical period uh, during this pandemic. On a lighter note, what do you guys think of the name? So uh, NASA opened up a poll to the public to choose between a set of names that were submitted by people of all ages from you know grade school all the way to being a professional. People submitted names and the one that NASA picked was Perseverance. What do you guys think? I think it's a great, great name. We've got uh, curiosity, perseverance. It's cool. Fun, fun. It's a pretty awesome name. I, I, I enjoy all the aspirational names that the rovers have. Me too. Um, I, I thought it was kind of interesting uh, that they went with something that's a little more uh, tame. I don't know. Perseverance is like someone that weathers the storm. Uh, as opposed to some of the other suggestions that were like courage, which is the one I voted for, uh, because I voted for courage because it's doing like these crazy things. It's got the little uh, helicopter that's going to go with it and scout out ahead. It's going to take some samples and keep them for later, but it's going to take the samples, store them for possible future missions to recover those samples. It's going to persevere. So I think it may, I think it makes sense. It's nice. And we find Mars 2020 was unbearable. So I'm glad we picked uh, a better name. Finally. I think I do like ExoMars. I don't like the ExoMars 2020 name, but like ExoMars sounds cool. I will say, one of my personal favorites that, you know, may have not been a good name for the mission, but one of the ones I saw in the semi finalist list was Dusty. I thought it would have been (laughs) really cool having a rover called Dusty. On Mars. Yeah, that's got a nice charm to it. Dusty yeah. make dusty face. <laughs> well, I guess not as cheerful as the new rover Perseverance name is the Bigelow layoff. Continuing on the coronavirus train. Yeah. So let's remember Bigelow Aerospace um, in you know recent times has they launched a test article to the space station that they called the expandable module where it launched up all collapsed, connected to the space station and then inflated and unfurled into uh, a workable component that astronauts could go into and work from. And Bigelow had the hopes of um, working with the International Space Station. Um, You know, designs came out for a ginormous version of it that could have a lot of workable space, workable interior space. And yeah, 68 employees are feeling it now with their entire workforce laid off. Yeah, so this is really really unfortunate and sad. Um, a lot of people have put a lot of hope into inflatable modules, and Bigelow has a license to the patent uh, from NASA to build these inflatable to build these inflatable modules. I will say an important thing to note is this comes after. Uh, Bigelow tried to compete for providing or to provide commercial modules to the ISS. And NASA eventually chose Axiom Space instead of Bigelow. Um, and, and that might have been on, along with you know the financing situation of the pandemic. Yeah. Might have been the you know the straw that broke the camel's back here. So I yeah, I, I have a I've picked out a quote from an article on this where um, they look back at January 28th interview with Robert Bigelow himself, um, where Bigelow actually declined work, uh, declined to submit a proposal to NASA for um, building a commercial space station module. Um, And I think the proposal would have included a separate free flying facility as well. And they, in that interview, he said that um, in order for Bigelow to do that, it would have cost it would have um, cost them 
$561 million to support both, which was, quote, uh, asking just too much of the company. So they had to bow out from that proposal from NASA. So this could have been a long time coming. And yeah, it's... uh, Damn coronavirus. No, it's definitely unfortunate, but, you know, Bigelow, there's been reports of Bigelow not being the most well-run company, not being the the best place to work for. And, you know, Robert Bigelow is not a through and through like space engineering type, right? He's a billionaire that made his money in hotels and the attraction for the technology was really like these self-sustained space hotels, at least in the early days of Bigelow Aerospace. And while they had two prototype free-floating modules and the Bigelow expandable activity module on the ISS, uh, setting up an entirely independent space hotel is is really expensive. And there's just been other uh, delays, right? You know, commercial crew, both Boeing and SpaceX, never uh, got off the ground during that time period, like we're still awaiting the first crude flight uh, from one of those companies, which would provide the access to these potential space hotels. Uh, Bigelow got the contract uh, for Beam for the ISS. Um, and all of that, you know, connected with uh, funding. It's, it's really hard to go out and get funding, uh, capital intensive funding, when you don't have an existing revenue stream, right? Like you've had these prior contracts uh, in the past, but you're like, we need this money so that we can, can compete for a contract. And if we win the contract, then we'll get money. Uh, it is quite risky. And, and when the economy becomes uncertainty, uh, when the economy becomes uncertain, and uh, it gets way harder for those companies, especially like trying to raise $500 million uh, to start a project and to begin to compete a project is quite difficult. That's exactly what happened to another company that I'd like to talk about. Leo Aerospace is a company that was trying to do small launch using a balloon-borne launch system where they would lift a rocket uh, launch platform up to 18,000 meters and then use the rocket to get to orbit from there. So Leo Aerospace had exactly this problem. They ran out of money waiting for a grant to come through from the U.S. Air Force. It was a small business. Um, incubator grant and the response from that grant was delayed by four months and in the meantime the company ran out of money in the bank and they couldn't they have gone into what they're calling hibernation mode because they can't sustain business even though uh, you know however they might have been on track you can't keep developing if you can't pay your workers so um, yeah like that exactly what you said DJ the it's coming down to finances and if your company is set up right and if you get if you got lucky with some funding and timing um these startups are gonna these new companies these startups in small satellites and in small launch you know i think right now we're gonna see who makes it and uh for me at least it looks like this is definitely going to be this end of the small launch boom that we've seen in the past couple months. TJ, you wrote a great article on our blog going through the, all the different small launcher companies um, that are competing for that market of CubeSats and, and very small satellites, getting them to orbit. And um, there's just so many that... I was talking to some friends about Leo Aerospace and they hadn't even heard of them. So, yeah, I, th- I think... This will definitely weed out the market and the well-run ones and the lucky ones are going to survive. I think uh, I definitely agree with the end of the small launch boom. It was going to happen eventually. There was just too many companies working on too many similar ideas or in a similar market. Um, And it was either going to be a signal within the small launch market, say one or two providers, you know, take the majority of the available contracts or a very big, well-funded company like Vector Aerospace collapsing. Uh, but the the thing that was enabling this boom was 
you know, that, that kind of gold rush mentality where it's, it's so easy to go out and get money and it's a, it's an unaddressed market because there, there weren't that many companies competing. It's like, Oh, give me $50 million and we'll use modern technology and we'll, we'll build a small launcher. And if we get there first, there's, you know, a, a huge business opportunity. And so all those conditions were, were, were all of those conditions were available and enticing uh, but it just, it was a bubble, right? There's hundreds of these companies working on mostly the same thing. And, you know, the key thing feeling that is access to investor capital. And when the market goes, uh, hits it, when the market hits a downturn, the bubble pops, right? And so I, I think this is just the beginning. We've already seen two incredibly well-funded large aerospace companies shut down, uh, We'll probably see dozens, if not hundreds, over the next three to six months. And there's pros and cons to that, right? On the con side, people are losing their jobs. Um, potentially promising technologies are not going to be developed. Things are going to be half finished. All that development effort might have gone to waste. But on the, the pro side, you're going to have all these aerospace engineers that are that have had experience working on real hardware uh, and they're going to be open to new ideas, forming new companies. And so it, it's not all uh, doom and gloom. I think uh, this bubble has put in a lot of money and training experience into the, the small launch uh, engineering market and it has potential to be redirected into new projects and new ideas, right? I think that's a great way to close out that discussion. And for the listeners, let us know what you think about the impacts of the current pandemic on the industry. Let us know if you've had any personal experiences or have known or know people that have had been affected. Um, feel free to reach out to us on the forum, Twitter, Facebook, or email us at specscast at gmail.com. Especially if you're in, uh, like actually feeling some of the things that we're talking about. If you're working in a company that is doing really well in light of these things. We'd love to hear that perspective. If uh, you're, you know, recently working at Bigelow, for example, and you're now thinking, "What do I do next?" Uh, we'd love to talk to you and and see what you have to say about uh, how the industry is working so far. Let's switch gears. The coronavirus has been dominating the news, and I think now uh, we should talk about a few things that are not related to that pandemic, but are still very, very interesting topics in the space industry. And first, the first thing is LOPG, the Lunar Orbital, Pla the Lunar Orbital Platform Gateway is no longer a requirement for the Artemis mission from NASA. NASA's new lunar program no longer requires this, you know, what they, what the past five years more, uh, what, what has been like a cornerstone for that journey to Mars, that return to the moon. LOPG, no longer a requirement. What does that mean? So it's, it's definitely complicated. Um, so the Lunar Orbiting Platform Gateway, uh, now renamed to the Deep Space Gateway, is basically a, a small space station uh, in a near rectilinear halo orbit around the moon, which means it's uh, close, it, it which means it's an orbit that gets close to the moon on one end and very far away from the moon on the other end of its orbit. And so it always has uh, communication and solar power access. And while this orbit has benefits to building a space station around the moon, it is not as advantageous for actually landing on the moon. So any craft that has to go from low Earth orbit and then stop at this uh, gateway to then land on the moon is actually paying like a Delta V tax, right? Because it's more efficient to go directly there. But the argument was that if you go to this gateway, you can gather supplies, you can have multiple launches, you can build a multi-part lander and then move down to the lunar surface. And so it, it reduces the risk and is more sustainable because we can have this uh, relatively deep space um crude platform that we can test uh, radiation that also is part of the gateway plan. There were submissions to detach uh, a module 
and uh, do like free flying, like six month to a year experiments to kind of simulate floating in deep space without resupply. Uh, and the eventual long, long-term goal is to build this craft that would go to Mars as part of Gateway, detach it, and then send that to Mars. And so all of this really changed with the new Artemis branding and the goal of landing on 2020, landing on the surface of the moon by 2024. And so now enough of the gateway would have to be built very, very quickly so that elements from Earth, the lander could dock there, resupply, and then land. And I think NASA made a decision point of, we don't have enough money to build a lander and a space station and force both elements to work together. And that points to having a a larger integrated lander launched from Earth and sent to the moon directly rather than stopping and building it piecemeal in orbit. I think another important thing to note is, so this announcement mentioning that that the Lunar Gateway is no longer a requirement comes directly after the first launch of the SLS being delayed. So Artemis 1 now is more likely likely to be launched in mid to late 2021. For a program of that size, with a goal of 2024 being when a lunar lander would happen, 2021 for the first launch is really cutting it short. So that adds another schedule risk and forcing kind of the Artemis program to kind of reconsider plans if scheduling is a priority. This also lifts a huge requirement from contractors. Like um, we know that, um, you know, Boeing, I'm sure Lockheed and and Blue Origin and SpaceX are all, all have their eyes on how they can integrate themselves with this, um, with this program to have regularly occurring cargo missions, crewed missions, going back from Earth, the moon, the surface of the moon, all the way back to Earth. Like this lifts that whole piece of the puzzle where they have to dock with a space station in an eccentric orbit. So like Blue Origins, Blue Moon, does it get simpler um, now that their lander wouldn't have to also interface with this uh, orbiting platform? You know, I'm not sure. So Lunar Gateway is not a requirement, but it's still planned. Contracts are still out. Maxar is still working on the propulsion module. There are plans to still have the Lunar Gateway be built and operated. And so does it still make sense to build landers that would not interface well with, with the Gateway? So it's, you know, it's important to consider that the... Deep Space Gateway is now a separate, basically entirely separate initiative from Artemis. So the Artemis is, let's get back to the moon quickly, let's land by 2024. And by detaching the first landing from the Gateway, uh, that basically, it, it enables a longer timeline for Gateway. So Gateway is really now this basically International Space Station too. So it's got international partners. It has commercial space uh, contracts and partners. And so it is really this big ambitious project to kind of direct the focus of basically all the world's space agencies minus China on this uh, semi-permanent lunar outpost. And Artemis is really a let's land on the moon as quickly as possible and potentially the plans to interface the landing aspect of the program with the space station aspect of the program down the road, much later than 2024. So it's decoupling these missions so that they can both proceed. So it sounds like, especially like you said, Ferris, the delay of the SLS launch, it sounds like the move is like, well, we don't want Artemis to be blocked by the deep space gateway. So by not having it as a requirement for Artemis, they're unblocking Artemis, but they're not canceling the Deep Space Gateway so it can still live on. And So the, the plan is unchanged, but by changing the requirements for Artemis, they can decouple and the two missions and basically proceed in parallel? 
there's a lot of of unsaid impact with this, right? Uh, with requiring the gateway for a 2024 moon landing, that was bringing the schedule for gateway much closer. And so this reverts it back to what it originally was, which is, you know, sometime in the late 2020s, like 2028, right? So like we use the ISS and then basically retire the ISS and direct funding to the gateway. And it also means that smaller uh multi-part landers are less attractive, right? Because instead of launching smaller parts on commercial rockets, docking them to the gateway individually, and then sending a crew on Orion, and then assembling a a three-part lander, and then landing on the moon, and then coming back to gateway, and then going back on Orion, it makes a lot more sense to send a much larger one- or two-piece lander. And so it it has uh, impacts on the potential lunar landing architecture, as well as the timeline for Gateway. So what you mean by that, though, is that it's impacting uh, vehicles and mission architectures that are still in the paper phase. It, it sounds like the things... That- it has an impact on what contracts NASA is likely to select and which proposals NASA is likely to select. And for the ones that have already been selected, it, nothing really changes for them. To be, to be quite frank, if you look at the, I mean, the whole Artemis program has been challenged by by the timeline goal or by the you know, 2024 launch. A lot of these landers at the moment are still, still in the paper design phase. The 2024 landing goal is in three and a half years. It's still quite the aggressive schedule. But isn't that aggressive schedule what drives the rapid development that uh, NASA really wants to get commercial companies like I mean let's look at SpaceX the obvious example uh, of rapid development in this sector so like in in, in space industry I mean so like uh, SpaceX has a, a reputation for having impossible schedules and always being behind but it's because they, they set such aggressive goals that they use the schedule as a forcing function to push development as hard as it can go and, and hit that rev limiter as much as they can. And NASA has had the opposite problem where these, you know, things stall out before they get going. So, yeah, I think what makes, so I think one area where comparing SpaceX and NASA might, like might give us some challenges is SpaceX is a commercial enterprise. Each of their milestones sets, sets them up for bigger milestones. It, it, it builds up the economic engine of the company reusing boosters that allows for more launches at lower cost with more rockets reach landing you know the first lunar lander on on the moon in a in 40 something years you know, at least that provides us with a commercial or a vehicle that can be used but doesn't necessarily provide more funding it's it's so, technical so- milestone but it doesn't so necessarily saying, make it easier to move forward or to do more. So what you're saying is that the schedule is a carrot, but there's no corresponding stick when it comes to NASA's setting up these milestones? Maybe it's the or, other way around, where the schedule is the stick that you have to abide, you know, you have to abide by the schedule or else you know you're behind and more is expected. But then when you get there, you know, I mean it's awesome. Uh, it's it's a lunar landing, but the carrot you know, that's not much of a carrot. Now we need to go look for more funding to continue the, right. the program. Right. Yeah. The The change in requirements uh, has an outsized impact on what architectures are really feasible and therefore which one would get selected. So if you have a place to park modules, the uh, one of the concepts of operation was to have a three module lander. You'd have a descent module and ascent module and then kind of a space tug that would go from the gateway to low lunar orbit. And then the descent and ascent modules would actually do the landing. Um, And because you could combine all three, you could have multiple manufacturers work on on each module, and then you could launch those on smaller commercial rockets. We're still talking about Falcon Heavy and Vulcan and uh, New Glenn, so like the, the largest commercial rockets but smaller than SLS. 
uh, if you don't have a place to park that uh, near the moon, then you're really transitioning to what can we put on SLS? And so you go from um, launching just Orion on SLS with a lot of commercial rocket involvement to potentially doing the entire Artemis 3 mission with just SLS, with you launching Orion and a co-manifested payload uh, of the lander and potentially uh, funding SLS Block 1B, which has a larger upper stage, which can put more payload towards the moon. And so it's really a forcing function towards more SLS funding, more SLS launches, and away from commercial uh, away from commercial piecemeal launches for the mission. So it's it's more of a direct launch versus a distributed launch module. One thing, so I suppose, one thing I'm not sure if we do know this yet, is the capacity of the SLS enough to launch a crew and a lander? Or is it, would it be launching Orion and a lander at the same time? On SLS Block 1B, it would be. So there's, I see, so... And the current block is just block one. So there we, there's SLS still needs to be developed. Yeah, the current SLS uh, block one uses the uh, interim cryogenic upper stage, which is a modified yep. Delta Four upper stage. The evolved upper stage is a entirely new design that's much, much more massive, much larger, and would be able to take an Orion capsule plus a second payload, which would be a dedicated lander. So it would be very similar to a Apollo-style architecture. That, yeah. I'd imagine that might not help the schedule at the moment with the SLS program being very far behind and Block 1B being a requirement to making this happen. It's important to kind of remember the context within all this is happening. Programs with ambitious goals driven, driven by the White House have generally been kind of a function of the administration that's in place. The 2024 goal coincides with, you know, if President Trump gets another term, that'd be the end of the second term. And so there are some political motivations that are driving this. And any change in the current administration or the political atmosphere might impact the schedule, just like it has in the past with previous programs like the Constellation program. And so I always try to take a lot of these announcements and timelines and schedules with at least a, a grain of salt, especially given that, for example, the SLS program is you know, multiple years behind. And so there's even outside of the political context of this, there's also the, just the scheduling and contracting realities of, of these programs. So it's always interesting to see how things are progressing and where the contracts are going and where the funding is going. But it's also important, at least I've found it, to temper enthusiasm and like in the grand goals or the schedules given the current state of, of those programs. And an interesting, I guess, and on a slight tangent, an interesting um, recent announcement related to the Artemis program is, is the announcement that SpaceX will be the cislunar resupply um, or will be a cislunar resupply provider. And SpaceX made the announcement with an image of a modified Falcon um, or a Dragon um, that's supposed to be launched on a Falcon Heavy. So the DARPA launch challenge was a program for uh, competitors to build a rocket that could put a small payload into orbit and launch from an unimproved pad and do so from two undisclosed locations within uh, two weeks. Um, all of the competitors except for one dropped out. And so Astro was the only competitor at the end launching from Kodiak, Alaska. And they were pushing against the deadline. They had a rocket on the pad. They had a couple failed countdowns, or, or they had a couple aborted countdowns where they had uh, an instrumentation sensor on the rocket that they had to go and fix. And unfortunately, they missed the deadline. And so, uh, unfortunately, uh, DARPA had a, a had already extended the deadline. They hit the deadline, 
no successful launch had happened, so they ended the program without a winner. However, Astra is a, a startup uh, based in San Francisco, and they still want to prove and develop the capability of their launch system. And so they eventually uh, continue to try, and there's reports that that rocket actually uh, blew up on the launch pad about a month later, um, which is an unfortunate setback for, for Astra and for DARPA because they still don't have that rapid launch capability that they were looking for out to get looking for to get out of this challenge. Right. So I, I just want to add a little bit of context to the rapid launch challenge from DARPA. Uh, it started out, like you said, with multiple competitors. Uh, the two other companies, in addition to Astra, that were really vying for this were Vector. Virgin Orbit and Vector Space. Right. So Vector went belly up. Uh, we've talked about that in the past. Virgin Orbit dec- uh, actually dropped out in order to focus on their commercial launch capabilities. So instead of competing for this rapid launch uh, contract, they just shifted their focus. And um, so yeah, Astra was the only one left literally sitting on the launch pad. And uh, due to um, an anomaly that came up prior to launch, they uh, put a hold on it and the timer ran out. And that's it. So yeah, yeah. I will say the DARPA responsive access, like the space challenges have had a kind of a rough history. Before this, there was the, the responsive space access challenge where they picked Boeing and they had the Phantom Express or XS1. And you know, that program was, was canceled earlier this year. That program, the, the contractor actually quit and then DARPA was forced to cancel, uh, which is quite unfortunate. And that was a, a victim of Boeing basically auditing and cutting back their space projects once um, Starliner, the Starliner mission failed. But I suppose the theme here, unfortunately, is a series of unfortunate events. But so what bothers me is a couple things. One, it, it it's unfortunate for Astra. They're a startup. They're working on their first vehicle to get to orbit and they, they need money and one of the contracts like this, grants like this, are a great way to inject cash into their development. And chasing these contracts is really where the startups um, can see a solid, you know, if they meet the requirements, if they succeed, big if there, uh, they can count on a lot of this money. And it's not like an investor money. And, you know, it's a, it's a government contract. That's what you want. But on the other hand, I'm looking at this from DARPA's perspective. So there Yes, they changed the criteria, but what the criteria were at the end was for DARPA to give notice to the company, uh, the launch provider, within um, 14 days notice with uh, to prepare, integrate, and launch their payload at a given launch window. That seems like a very, uh, what's the word, useful, a very... It seems like a valuable capability to have for the de- Department of Defense or um, for especially the Department of Defense. I think that not having a company that can actually do that isn't really a drawback, at least from what I know about <laughs> the things that they might want to do. Obviously, they, they want to do whatever they want to do. It seems like a valuable capability that is not met. And yeah, I mean, DARPA, the point of DARPA is to push the limit and to get this new development going. And like, that's the whole reason for the organization. But just to have no winner and still not have that capability, I don't know. Like, I feel like somebody should be doing it. (laughs) You know what I mean? So the outcome of the DARPA launch challenge reminds me a lot about the Google Lunar X Prize. So that was a program to encourage commercial companies to compete to build a lunar lander uh, to land on the surface of the moon. And that prize uh, kept getting extended. And eventually at a point, um, there was the competitors had continued to fail to develop their lander. They continued to fail to book launches. Uh, and Space IL was the only company to book a launch, but it kept getting delayed. And so the program 
uh, prize actually ended, uh, but Space Isle had gone 90% of the way to launching, and so they launched anyway. And unfortunately, that lander uh, entered lunar orbit but failed to land softly. Uh, but even then, uh, the Google Lunar X Prize uh, organization made a moonshot award. Uh, and so Space IL did win uh, $1 million, uh, which is a fraction of the $30 million official prize that the program had. So, you know, these kind of competitive prizes are, are really hard to, uh, to earn. And unfortunately, I do agree that, like, these competitions need a time box, right? Like there has to be a deadline. Um, if you had a field of competitors that knew the timeline was was soft, they they might not be motivated to progress in a, a reasonable time period. Uh, but it does it is bittersweet when a, a competitor gets almost to the finish line and the time runs out. These smaller competitions, uh, like the Lunar X Prize and this DARPA Rapid Launch challenge um in my eyes seem a lot more effective on promoting uh research and development than the very large missions like artemis uh that we were talking about earlier um i guess they're tuned to the different people that they're catering to so like the winners of the artemis contracts are the large companies with lots of capabilities and lots of uh, capital and then these smaller uh, DARPA challenges that have much less, much more limited scope, um, are really for the companies that are just starting. Uh, companies like Astra, Virgin Orbit, that are um, just getting going. The driving force behind these kind of contracts and competitions is to encourage outside investment, and so you get an outsized return. Say you are the federal government with DARPA or or NASA. Uh, if you have $50 million to accomplish a goal, uh, that might not be enough. But if you structure it into like a public-private partnership or, or a competition prize, you can get uh, commercial companies to raise outside funding to compete for the prize. And suddenly the amount of money you invest um, goes from $50 million on your end to potentially hundreds of millions brought out by other companies. Um, and that's a way to – for – a given government dollar get more bang for your buck. I, but I think I think another, an important thing to note there is that is the case when the government goals or the competition objectives are aligned with commercial ones, either te- through technology development or through whatever the product that's being developed. So in this case, at least in the case of Virgin Orbit, you know, perhaps in what the launch capabilities are developing, it makes more sense to focus on getting that operational and delivering that service to the current customers then focusing on the rapid kind of responsiveness of that service. And so it made sense to, for Virgin Orbit to pursue their current customers and expand their customer base then to compete and spend resources on the challenge. So there, at least in the case of Virgin Orbit, there was somewhat of a misalignment in what the what the goals of the competition were and what customers might have been looking for but like if uh if the terms of a challenge or a competition do align with uh a commercial opportunity then it's like a company is like well i can compete for this challenge and get some money maybe but even if i don't win i still have uh the capability to satisfy this commercial market yeah i want to talk about um Astra, uh, their technology a little bit. They, for this challenge, we said that they uh, were on the launch pad and there was a hold on the launch and the timer ran out. The hold on the launch was for their guidance, navigation, and control system. There was an issue, there's some anomaly that happened and they discovered on the pad and scrubbed the launch. Uh, like you said, TJ, if, about a month later, uh, there are reports of uh, a launch anomaly that happened for Astra where there was an explosion or a fire on the launch pad. Completely different thing. Um, guidance, navigation, and control would be, you know, where the satellite thinks it's going. That doesn't necessarily translate to a fire on the launch pad. So what does that say about Astra's vehicle? I think it says that space is hard. 
and there's a thousand things that have to go right for a rocket to take off the pad, and only one thing has to go wrong. And you know, they have had prior launches that have gone off the pad. Um, they've also had uh, explosions and, and cleanup activities they had to do. So it's unfortunate, and you know they're going to keep. Hopefully, they're able to keep trying until they get a rocket into orbit, which is a huge accomplishment. Yeah, we've seen that in the past, even with SpaceX. It took the fourth Falcon one to get to orbit. And I think perhaps from what we know about Astro's rocket, it's meant to be very, very, very low cost. And so I'm sure that also presents its own challenges in terms of reliability, safety. Um, and what that translates to in the real world is delayed and canceled and aborted launches sometimes, especially when you're in the very beginning. Yeah, well, I'm depressed. But, How about you guys? <laughs> oh, shit, okay. Got too real too fast. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be a very uh, transformative time um, in space. I think uh, some big companies are going to have to reevaluate how which projects they work on and how they build those projects out. And I think we're going to see which uh, new space companies have what it takes to become fully-fledged, independent, money-making companies and which companies just had a flashy pitch deck and were able to get millions of dollars. And I, I think it will also help us, it'll help improve some of, you know, I guess on the more bright side is I'm sure having to work from home and having to be remote is going to push a lot of these companies to improve their IT practices, use newer technologies, rely on video conferencing more, make their software services available, use more software, um, and kind of move away from face-to-face meetings and personal relationships to just more, to, to kind of working in a more distributed, open way than they currently are. So we might see some you know, cultural, cultural and technological kind of changes and transformations in how people work. Yeah, I think uh, efficiency is the word that comes to mind when you say that. So um, newer companies with a younger uh, average age to their employees and engineers, I think are going to have an easier time transitioning to the work from home new normal than some other companies that are, like you said, very reliant on face-to-face meetings, going to people's desks, uh, having everyone in the same room, working, you know, not distributed. And I, I think um, in order for every company uh, to get through this, they're going to have to look at themselves and say, where can we be more efficient? There's less, the economy is taking a turn. And so these companies have to evaluate, like, how do we continue moving forward with everybody working from home, uh, which in itself introduces all these inefficiencies. And then also doing all of that with maybe less money to to pay for that. So you have to improve your efficiency. And I think, uh, like you said, on a brighter note, I think every company uh, that makes it through is going to learn so much. And when they do go back to work, all these lessons and all these different things that have been figured out, um, all these uh, efficiencies that will be learned and achieved, will hopefully stick around and all these companies will be stronger for having to go through and weather this storm. For me personally, that's kind of what's happening. So I prefer face-to-face contact. I prefer going to work and leaving my house and being in the workplace. And now I'm having to, um, you know, I'm communicating with people only over text is my weakness. I like emojis a lot, so custom emojis in Slack is really helping. <laughs> um, but when I say something and someone takes it completely the wrong way, and then I end up spending a ton of time writing, and then it's like, oh my God, all this stuff is breaking, and I'm writing this text, but they're not going to get it, and they need to act now. We'll get on a video conference and figure it out. Like It's having me take a look at how I communicate um, in a whole new way. And uh, I'm personally learning a lot about my communication skills. Which is kind of funny since we're all sitting here on a video conference recording a podcast. (laughs) Yes. 
Yes, definitely, definitely good learning experience. I have, like, on my end too, just working remotely, it's, yeah, having to learn how to compartmentalize time and, you know, be able to focus on goals and work on them in the same place where you sleep and eat. It's kind of a strange experience, but it built a certain, it's it's conducive to also practicing and building some discipline. And that's something I've kind of, it's been good. I have no excuse to put off editing the podcast anymore. I have so much <laughs> more free time. I don't have to, I get a, about 40 minutes back from not commuting. And then like, I used to stay at the office from like five to seven 30 to avoid traffic. And like, I got like three hours of not working every day. It's great. An interesting thing is like, yeah, the, there's no commute. Cause you're like, the distance from my like my room or the kitchen to my desk is negligible, right? So I have, I have zero commute. But on the train, that's like a designated hour. I have an hour train ride each way to and from work. That's a designated time for me to get into work mode. Uh, sometimes I read, sometimes I work on a personal project. And it's a it's a consistent block of time where I can just like, it's separate and it's a transitionary period. I don't have that. Uh, I had, there was a tip to walk the dog and get yourself into work mode, but like, I suppose to our listeners, you know, if you're also impacted or at least let us know how you're impacted by, you know, the change in the working conditions, what work from home is like for you. If you have to work on hardware, if you're a student, what that looks like, how that has impacted you, some of the lessons you have learned, some of the challenges that you face and how you see that impacting others in the space industry and in other adjacent or relevant or related um, industries. Yeah, and now is a great time to come together as a community of enthusiasts about space exploration uh, and talk with each other and, you know, get through these, these times together. So definitely reach out on Twitter, email us. And uh, yeah, we're in this together, guys. All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you like this episode, make sure you subscribe to get future ones on Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you choose to listen through. You can check out our huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including interviews with key people in the space industry, in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, and commentaries on recent events on our website, blog.specscast.com. Also, once again, let us know what you think. Uh, you can talk to us with a question, a comment, or even better, leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast service of choice. And reach out via Twitter at Specscast or an email to Specscast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott. That was fun. <laughs>